to another episode of Bringing Design Closer, the podcast focused on discussing design's role in tackling complex societal issues. Our goal is to have conversations here that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm the founder of the Human Centred Design Network and the CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, home to many of the world's best design and change-making courses online. Today in the show, we have Brigitte Metzler, Research Ops Lead at Australian Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment. And Brigitte is co-chair of the Research Ops community and is based in one of my favourite places on earth, Tasmania. And we cover off some of the eight pillars of research operations in this episode and talk openly about the challenges that Brigitte faced when setting up the architecture for research ops to blossom inside the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment. We speak about the measurements of success for research ops and also the challenges that are faced when presenting it first to the organisation. Although in Bridget's case, the maturity and the desire was already existing in her current role. We speak about the recent diagnosis that Bridget have about being neurodiverse and her journey to get to that point. And I was really curious to tap more into this and we cover off some interesting areas of symmetry whilst doing it. Now, before we jump in, Bridget wanted to mention the Research Ops Conference that is happening on June the 8th in New York. And it's also available if you're remote. I'll throw a link to this in the show notes, but it's definitely something to get behind if you're interested in the whole area of Research Ops. Let's get into the episode. It's a brilliant one. Brigitte, it gives me the biggest satisfaction to finally welcome you onto This Is HD. I'm a huge fan and a very warm welcome to bringing design closer. Um, I'm delighted to have you on the show. So Brigitte, tell us a little bit about you. So where are you coming from today? Uh, well, it's a good question. And thank you so much. Uh, just equally such a fan. So um, really honoured to, to be here with you and having a chat. So thank you for that. Uh, I am right now in Tasmania. Uh, Australia, so it's a little teeny tiny island uh, at the bottom of beautiful the world. Island, though. <laughs> it Absolutely. is a beautiful island. Yes. When we were back and forth, I was like, Tasmania was the place that when I visited, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this feels like home. Mm. And it's just, it's it's so like Ireland in many ways, especially where I grew up. Right. And um, when I visited there, it is probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. It's it's so you're phenomenal. Very lucky. I am, yes. Yeah, and great yeah. food and great wine. I know, we've got truffles and wine and olives and, uh, you know, mm. you name it, we've, we've got if it. You, if you were to design a, a country or a little island, mm. it would probably be Tasmania that has all the, all the probably, best stuff. Yes, yes, it does. Jeez, we've got amazing wine. beaches and, you know, we've got the East Coast, which is a little bit like Greece <laughs> in the summer yeah. when it's really warm sort of turquoise aqua water and white sands and and then you go over to the other side of Tasmania and it's these huge mountains and these deep rivers that you know um are just so untouched and and beautiful I just can't believe it very lucky it's I mean Australia really is it's it's got it's got so many different terrains Mm -hmm. and so many different aspects yeah it which is what makes it such a special, special place. Like, you know, yeah. a special place in my heart, obviously, from living there for 13 and a half years. But we're going to, I want to talk to you a little bit more. There's there's so many things we can, we can speak about in mm-hmm. this episode today. We've just been catching up and talking about your work in uh, the Department of Agriculture in, yes. in Australia. Yes. Um, But maybe I'm going to start right back at the start and <laughs> um, going to ask you a question about whenever you're out and about, how do you describe 
or how do you answer the question when people say, what do you do? Mm. Uh, well, I mean, my job title is Research Operations Lead at Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment. Um, mm -hmm. Most people don't know what that is. Uh, yeah. And so if I'm talking to just a random person on the street, my doctor, my physio or something, yeah. uh, I'll say, well, my job is to um, take care of researchers, lots and lots and lots of them, all doing lots and lots of things, make sure that they have everything they need to, to do good work. And, uh, and then we need to make sure that we can make the most of that work over time. Mm. That's pretty much how I That's would a pretty nice summary. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice summary. Yeah. So the work that you're doing with um, Department door. of Agriculture, it's Water and Environment, we've got a door, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great acronym. It is. But you mentioned there about like looking after many researchers. Mm. How many researchers are currently in DOOR? Mm, it's a good question. Uh, and actually, we, yeah. So the, the interesting thing about DOOR, because it's um, so scientific, is that one in seven people in that department are actually a researcher. Right. But they're not user researchers. Right. They're scientists. And like we have a whole social sciences division, uh, academic mm. kind of um, uh, research. Um, so there's a, there's a deep understanding of what research is for, which is great. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, yeah, when I, when I got there, we, we had, um, uh, we had three teams who had been doing user research that I knew of for a little while, just little teams of, you know, two or three. Um, yeah. and then, and then we had this emerging large program, uh, which, you know, is designed there to, um, to, to, to de deliver on uh, the department's trade reform agenda, um, and so we had one, we had one researcher, and uh, and wow. now in our guild, I think I counted yesterday, I saw on our guild we've got fifty-two researchers and designers, okay. and so that was last March, and and now it's February, <laughs> and here yeah. we are. So uh, I think it's thirty-four delivery teams, maybe, and. Um, uh, several um, more on top of that. So we're just sitting on about 40 teams, I think, overall across the department that I need to take care teams. of. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. That's, that's a lot of different requirements mm. and a lot of people working at probably different levels of maturity as regards mm -hmm. research. Um, mm -hmm. In your role um, for DOOR, yeah. how do you... How do you work across all of those? So like, obviously we, we could speak a little bit more about research operations because a lot yeah. of the... The, the benefits of being co-chair of the research operations can probably uh, offer you some advantages in this. Yeah. So um, how does that work yeah. in terms of managing those? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we, we just became a team of three, so that's, yeah, <laughs> that's good. Uh, <laughs> but um, so you're quite right. I mean, uh, so have been lucky enough to, to be taking care of the research operations community since sort of the beginning of 2019, more or less, mm -hmm. uh, after Kate Towsey, who founded the community, left. And um, you know, there's a cheese board and uh, Holly Cole and myself are co-chairs. And um, all of the projects that we've done have really defined the profession of research operations. And so it's mm. probably the first time in my life I've ever actually done a job and people sort of say to me, Oh, um, 
are you the right person to ask this question? And and I have all of these frameworks. I have one printed right beside me on my <laughs> on my on my wall, um, which tells me exactly what my job is. And so I, I primarily work across the eight pillars of user research. Yeah. So that's an article that Emma Bolton wrote up, which actually it, it's a beautiful thing because it's you know we're all re- come from research, so we we love our raw data, and and so we did. Uh, in the research ops community, we did a project called What is Research Operations? So when Kate mm-hmm. founded the community, we got together and went, oh, we probably need to figure this thing out. So yeah. we did a, a project um, across uh, 17 countries. Uh, we did 33 workshops. And then uh, I was lucky enough to do the global analysis and put that all together. And all of that raw data is still actually available online. You can have a look at it and pull through it and make sense of it. Yeah. Um, and when we did that, we put together the what is research operations uh, sort of diagram. Um, and that tells you the what of ops. So those are all the tasks and those are the questions people mm. ask me all the time, the what of ops. Um, and then the eight pillars is how does the how does research connect with operations? Where does that fit? And so Can that's a lot a more strategic. talk a bit more around that? Mm. Yeah, sure. That was Emma Bolton wrote that, didn't, didn't they? Like, yeah, I she did. Years ago. Yeah, so um, just to you know, give to give due credit and all of that where it's Absolutely. due. Um, so Emma uh, Bolton, um, Tomomi Sasaki, Holly Cole, and I uh, got together to just have a look at the original, you know, the flower diagram that we have of what research operations is, mm-hmm. to try to see if we could uh, make sense of the data in a in a different way to help communicate the story. Um, and Emma ultimately came up with the eight pillars, but it's actually um, it, it's very robust because I think, and I don't think we did that on purpose, but uh, there's actually like in, in business management there um, there are things called PESL models, uh, and a PESL model is actually a business strategy model, and so that looks mm-hmm. at um, the what is it the people, the environment. Can't remember the rest of PESL, <laughs> but we can probably Google Processes it. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then there's legal and yeah. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, so um, there's things in there. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's things. Trust me, just go, just go Google it. And um, when you look at the the eight pillars of user research, it's it it equates quite well, and um, yeah. it has not failed me in you know four years. I still use it every day. I write my week okay. notes according to the structure. Um, all of my, you know, DevOps boards and my tickets are all, this is a governance question. Is it a data and knowledge management question? Is it a research recruitment question? Is it a tooling mm-hmm. question? What do we need to do here? And um, uh, and that just, yeah, helps to so, frame So what is work. a day... It sounds like there's an awful lot going on here. Yeah. <laughs> what does a typical day look like for you then um, as regards your work? Um, most people comment, gosh, you've got a lot of meetings. Your calendar's very full. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. A lot so, of Zoom um, calls. <laughs> yes. And, you know, as I say, we're, we're all online and um, the team's distributed. And so, of course, yeah. it's all, um, yeah, all on Teams. Um, so uh, I have a research operation stand-up. And uh, and actually, we have a digital trade handbook, so you can actually have a look at what our how do we how do we gather. You can go and actually mm-hmm. have a look at that. That's online and visible. Yeah. 
So have our stand-ups. Um, I have a capability team stand-up, which is um, all of the disciplines getting together, the leads from each each discipline, so design, content, research, research ops, um, and, and legal and, and security, getting together to discuss the disciplines and how we work um, that stuff together. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we do that. And then... Uh, Usually we'll head into some kind of a meeting with someone who has a question from anywhere yeah. in the department. Um, and, you know, people will be messaging, uh, of course, to say, I need access to this tool or uh, do I need mm. consent for this? Or what what does consent look like when I'm doing this type yeah. of research method? And, and so, you know, at first it was having to manually answer all of those things. And now, of course, um, I can refer people to, have you gone and had yeah. a look at the handbook? Have you, you know, found the template, the tool, the guide? Here's the here's the how-to, you know, if you want a tooling request, then you send that through to the research operations inbox and that'll get picked up by my team. Sure. Yeah, So in, in a life before research ops, mm-hmm. I know there's people out there who are probably like kind of going, research ops, okay. Mm-hmm. They might have heard of des- de- DevOps and stuff. Mm-hmm. But what, what does life look like can you remember what life looked like as a, yeah. as a researcher w- without research ops can we talk a little bit more oh, on that because sure. i think it, it might paint a picture of familiarity to some people yeah I, th- I think it does and you know when we do a talk about what research ops use or the eight pillars of user research you just see all of the researchers in a room and you see their shoulders are all tight and then and then you tell them about it and there's this deep sigh and everyone yeah. lets go oh. <sighs> someone understands um so I think that um, a lot of the work, so operations work, a lot of it is um, something I'm quite passionate about because I'm passionate about making explicit hidden work. And and so, you know, if you're a researcher without research operations, you're doing it anyway. I guarantee it. Yeah. You cannot not yeah. be doing it. What you're doing, though, is, is probably feeling really nervous and stressed and flying by the seat of your pants and hoping for the best and crossing your fingers a lot of the time, to be really honest, because um, all of the the doing of research is is almost um, this tiny thing and there's the planning, there's creating the environment for research to happen. You know, you've got to get buy-in. You've got to have people understand what's that what, what, why am I doing this piece of research and why should I be on board with you going and investigating this thing and having a look at it and pulling apart this thing that really feels like mine? Um, you know, if you're, if you're not necessarily, if you're in a research team that is um, mm. separate to the thing, that, that's quite a bit of the work. Um, you've got to, you know, find what the right process and method is you've got to write your consent form and I have zero doubt that every single person is writing their, a, a consent form and then going oh surely <laughs> surely it's a better way <laughs> getting that checked yeah. off by legals and you know it just goes on repeating and on. the same processes over and mm-hmm. over again yeah and then having people call you um which is certainly you know when I started research operations I was sort of brought in by a team to look at data but quickly could see that actually what they had was a data and knowledge management issue. Not mm. it, They didn't want me to do their analysis. They wanted me to help them find their data, make sense of the data, um, feel safe with the data, um, mm-hmm. know how to share it, give them a yeah. mechanism for sharing. Like um, 
you know, as a, as a researcher, I'm sure everyone will have experienced someone calling them and saying, uh, have you done any research on X, Y, Z? And you're like, oh, I'm sure I did. Well, first of all, can I find it? And then second of all, should I be sharing this with them? Yeah. If you're in a big organization, yeah. should I? I don't know. That's the silo Absolutely. over there. And, yeah. Yeah. Is there uh, stuff and, on there that can incriminate people? And mm-hmm. is there personal data? Has it been de-anonymized? Yeah. I was going to say we haven't even talked about participant safety, you know, so mm. it's just, it just goes on. There's a lot. And, Absolutely. And so I, I don't know how researchers have the mental space to make, like, um, you know, I'm doing a PhD and my supervisors are really big on the idea of doing nothing for a while in order yeah. to actually have proper thought about the data. Yeah. Like, go for a walk. <laughs> have some After space. research, just do nothing. Is that mm-hmm. what you're talking about? Yeah, you're referring to? Yeah. yeah. I'm a big believer in that as well, just letting it sit. Mm. Yeah. Um, and just letting your brain process it, especially mm. in the online world where it becomes uh, amplified and concentrated mm-hmm. in that experience of when you're listening mm. and deep listening. It, yeah, it's interesting yeah. to see that. In, in, in their theory, how long? Do they have any theories on how long? Are they that, I don't that know. specific? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm doing my PhD part-time and I, I, I hope that they think that it's very long. <laughs> yeah, three years. I waited in between three years to synthesize that data. <laughs> well, you know, I did have I did have some new insights about it only recently and, and uh, some of the data I started collecting in I don't know, when did I start collecting it? 20, uh, yeah, maybe it was 2017 even. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been going sort of longitudinally, so it's been going for a while, but um, yeah. kind of, uh, yeah. You're picking I'm, up lots of data as you go along. Yeah, of course. And and also Absolutely. learning you, you're becoming a different person. And so I'm not saying that, you know, design researchers or user researchers should have years of space <laughs> to yeah. do their research. It's probably a bit, um, there's a tension there because you're always working within a capitalist society. And I think um, yeah, it's just there and it needs to be wrestled with. But um, I think if I could create time and space for researchers, I would feel that I had done a good job for yeah. them. Mm. And their safety as well. That's obviously yeah. a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, well, when we were speaking earlier on, we were talking a little bit more around the the architecture, mm-hmm. and instantly I was like, "Okay, this is this is a fascinating topic." And I know listeners will be, you know, the ears will prick up a little bit more when we start talking about this. But you joined the door um, mm-hmm. nine months ago, and you mentioned about setting up the arch- uh, the architecture f- for the organization. Can you talk for user to me, research, yeah. For user yeah. research, yeah. yeah. Can you walk me through the the stages right at that moment where you were walking into the organization mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what did that look like? What were you faced with mm. um, and what were the challenges that you were faced with at the start? Okay. Um, so what did I'm going to like? do, I'm have to do this in two stages because I really want to talk to you about the philosophy of how you create architecture, but we'll talk about that yeah. in a bit. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so when I, you know, when I, when I got to door, um, user research had been around for about four years, uh, just in little pockets. Okay. Um, I, I think about four and, uh, and so it was generally not done 
by people who were already working within the department. It was done by people who came in to, to do a piece of work. Um, and so there was uh, nothing in relation to, um, okay, I've got this piece of personally identifiable information. Where should I store it? Um, you know, uh, what does Can the I consent ask where form? they were storing it then? What did also, it look like in terms of hmm. data storage at that point? So, uh, so generally, what's happening is is um, just uh, absolute rigid rigidity, which is fantastic because you know if you're not sure what to do, you should always de-identify. So, yeah. de-identified data, nothing else kept. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So we've we've worked with the legal team for you know for the past nine ten months, um, and with the teams who were already there to say what does it look like when we're doing that better or what does it look like if we're wanting to do this in a systemic, organised way where we're bringing everything together kind of thing. What, you know, it is um, in government you have uh, a thing called the Archives Act, which is a you know, piece of legislation that mm -hmm. defines how you should store a piece of information and what does that look like when you're doing service design delivery, which is mm. incredibly um, movable, you know, at, at what point has a decision been made and therefore it needs to be recorded as, you know, as a record? And yeah. um, and how do you how do you create that in a space that is constantly moving? So, you know, we've really had to sort of work together to understand um, knowledge management, but then also how that knowledge changes over time. And that's, I think, that's a, a thing I really like. I'm very interested in that. So I think we can work... I'm looking forward to working on that a lot more. Um, yeah. Over the, over the next while. So yeah. at that point, you you said there was meant there there was research user research that had been going on for a number mm -hmm. of years. Mm -hmm. um, when you walked into the organisation, there was probably lots of other challenges uh, at mm -hmm. play. But w what did you do to move the dial forward in terms of implementation of research apps as a, at a mindset yeah. level? Yeah. I'm sure you had to, you had to sell Still this thing into to, to stakeholders. Well, I, I think um, I was just really very lucky. Um, so that sales pitch had already been done by uh, senior leaders in the organisation. They brought me in on purpose because they okay. believed in research operations. They knew it was what they needed. They knew that they wanted to bring in this way of working and, you know, um, to sort of deliver on a future vision for the department, they would need to embrace human-centred design. They would need mm -hmm. to then grapple with how do we operationalise that um, for the entire department. So um, my lovely uh, boss, Magda, um, had and, and uh, one of the senior researchers there, Helen, had uh, had said, this is what we need. We need to be able to find our research. We need to know if it's good. We need to be able to actually keep the data somehow and understand if we should use it again or not. Mm -hmm. um, these are all of our pain points we need to, and we're going to need to grapple this because we are about to go through a period of massive change in mm. the Ag 2030 you know, trade reform agenda. And then we're looking at, you know, biosecurity reform and, and um, imports reform as well. So we knew all of this stuff had to happen in the next couple of years. So they kind of bought me in ahead of time, which was nice. Mm. So what does it look experiment. like? <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. And like, I just want to preface, like, 
you know, you mentioned about landing this role, you know, people had seen a video that you'd done in your previous role mm-hmm. um, that, that led to this role opening up for you. And I think that's a really interesting segue about encouraging designers to talk about their work and, and to yeah. share and to be more transparent. And yeah. at its core, my understanding of the research ops team is that's one of the, the underpinning mindsets, isn't it? Or am I right yes. in saying that about being able to share and be yeah. hyper transparent about what you're doing mm-hmm. and why you're doing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, several things there that spring to mind. One is that if you are going to be a research operations person right now mm-hmm. in particular, what you're doing is a change role. So your your job is to break down silos and to make people feel safe when you do it. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a it's a really hard job. <laughs> so it's yeah. definitely not not for the not for the faint of heart. But you know, ultimately, when you when you go to work, you generally have a sense of um, purpose and meaning in your work, right? Mm-hmm. And so no one no one puts a barrier in place uh, necessarily on purpose. They do it as a as a protective mechanism, I think, in general, or because you know when you've got a large organisation, how on earth do you manage all all that knowledge and information and people yeah. and the busyness of it? So it's not an intentional thing. Um, and so one of the beautiful things about governance, I I, I personally say that governance sets you free. <laughs> it's really really taggy. <laughs> Liberates you. It's it's very liberative because uh, that's the right word or way way to say it. But um, yeah. if you can make implicit stuff explicit, then it sets uh, a foundation for people to feel like they know exactly what they are and are not allowed to do, and they also have a sense of agency in the decisions that are being made about how those silos get broken down, when, with whom, and how. So. Um, yeah, I think that's the key thing that we do throughout the whole research life cycle. So if you look at how do we gather, how do we get consent? It's not just the participant, although they're really important. Obviously, they have their own sense of agency and ownership of their story. The researcher has an, a sense of agency and ownership of um, the context, context of the story. They're kind of, um, you know, they're the they're the, the midwife that's taking a whole bunch of stories and kind of making sense of them and funneling them out in a way that makes sense to someone else. And that contextual um, translation is super important to researchers. So you have to, Mm. you've got to hold on to that. Then the people who actually kind of are responsible for delivering the thing, they have to have a sense of ownership and purpose and, and, um, and safety about how that stuff gets shared with whom and, Mm. and, when and how yeah yeah so yeah it's i'm surely at, at that time when you were in um the early stages of your role mm. um measuring success for oh. the the research apps uh, hopefully this isn't a contentious area but mm. how do you measure success mm. through implementation of research apps How's oh that's that a really like? yeah i think it's it's a good question to ask i think i'm um I don't know that I've got it right, and so I guess I would uh, preface it with this is this is these are my way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so there's the a met- couple of things. The Metzler method. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. So this is my second time, and um, 
And what I've noticed about research operations is that you are doing hidden work. So as I yeah. said before, uh, so you're doing hidden work. So if it's good, it should be unnoticeable. And so that makes it mm. really hard to show that it's good. So, yeah. and, you know, I see that, um, I see that everywhere, you know, when people have the right tools for the job, they don't stop to think, someone got me the right tool for the job. <laughs> someone went through yeah. the procurement process and the, you know, privacy and the cyber and all of that stuff to make sure it was right. Yeah. It just happens. So that is about talking frequently and often about this is what we got done. So, um, uh, in my previous role, uh, I learned to do that because um, because people would say, who are you and what is it that you're doing? <laughs> because yeah. research operations wasn't even a term then. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we really did have to explain ourselves. Um, here, I do that in a number of ways. One is, you know, across so many teams, um, you can... <laughs> I imagine as a researcher, I would be sending Bridget a message and saying, can you answer my question? And then she's not responding to me and I don't know why. And it's because mm. you probably don't realize that, you know, maybe 30 people have asked me a question at the same time or something like that. Yeah. So we have uh, an internal uh, a research ups roundup <laughs> and uh, it started out as an email to just various people to go, hey, this is kind of what we covered off this week so that you can see. Uh, what we're doing, and mm. then uh, has become like a, a digital newsletter uh, that people can subscribe to and so they can see these are the things that we're doing. Um, okay. Yeah, and then just recently we, we started out an open Kanban, so literally anyone in the department can put in a ticket now, which is a bit scary. But at mm. the same time, it also means that anyone in the department can see exactly what we're working on at any moment if they want to. Uh, and then finally, um, because I work with leaders who are really into working in the, in the open and transparently, mm -hmm. I'm expected to write about that in public as well. So, uh, so I have week notes and I ramble on at length because I usually write them really late at night. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. You can see that on Medium. So there you The go. week notes thing is, is really interesting. I've seen mm -hmm. lots of people over the last... I don't know, 18 months, maybe two years, it's, be, it's become a thing that, you know, Saturday morning, you know, I'll get 30 <laughs> seconds in between feeding the kids yeah. and uh, I'll look on my LinkedIn and I'll see people's week notes. Yeah. Where, where did it come from? Is that part of the research ops community? No, I think it actually originated at GDS in the UK. Okay. That's my my guesstimate. Um, so my that would boss, make sense. Jordan Hatch, yeah, he comes from, he worked at GD, GDS and uh, he weeknotes um, lots of people in One Team Gov, which is a, you know, a, a yeah. group of public servants from all over the world who, who in their spare time, unpaid time, get together to talk about government and being a public servant. Um, they do weeknotes and, uh, yeah, I think it's just about how do you support democracy and a sense of trust in government. You know, we're just people. And we're just doing yeah. our best. <laughs> they're show, showing transparency in, in what mm -hmm. they're doing and what they're achieving on a week-by-week -week basis. Yeah, yeah. Which, and which I is think a mind shift. It is. And I think it's so important for research operations as well because it's not it's not all sunshine and roses and you don't get that story very often. Um, but my leaders have empowered me to, to do this. Mm. It's not sunshine and roses. This is kind of, this was hard this week. Yeah. 
I noticed in when I was researching for the episode that as part of research ops, um, recruitment is a big thing. Mm. And is it one of the pillars? I'm not sure if it's one of the pillars, yeah, but it is. Yeah, it is one of the pillars. Yeah. So, what does that look like? Recruitment in mm. terms of bringing new people into the team, or is it recruitment no. of participants? Mm. How do you frame frame it? It's recruitment of participants. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one because we, you know, yeah. in your in a, when you're in a scaling organisation, you're also doing lots mm. of recruitment, so um, <laughs> they can be hard. Um, yeah, so recruitment of research participants is. Um, a definite pain point across the everyone in user research. Um, I think it's a very rare researcher who doesn't feel a pain. Um, and there's just so much to it. I mean, how do you, how do you, you can dig right into it. Like how do you um, create safety for research participants? How do you actually transform it from, you know, an extractive process of gathering story to a co-design mm. process that I'm sure that there's a movement there that will happen. Um, but of course, you know, user research is kind of embedded in, um, uh, well, it depends on which discipline you come from, but in mine, it sort of comes from anthropology and and, um, and ethnography. And that's, it can be an seen as an extractive process I mean there's a lot of deeply uncomfortable stuff about anthropology where you're really looking at that kind of um, paternalistic approach to um, understanding people and uh, mm. so how do you how do you actually create uh, a much more equal ethical unbiased um, research project you've got to start with ethical unbiased, you know, research participants and you've got to be ethical yeah. with them and you've got to get lots and lots of different diversity across that. So, um, and surely it's part the, of your team as well. That's, that's one of the, the prerequisites mm-hmm. that you have a diverse mm-hmm. and inclusive team. And that's not just with, you know, gender and race and, and everything else. Yeah. It's, um, in terms of different, you know, neurodiversity, um, yeah. we, we were speaking earlier about, neurodiversity and you mentioned that you know you, you've been diagnosed a number of years ago as, as neurodiverse are you okay yeah. to talk a little bit more yeah, around um you know why it's important to have representation for neurodiverse mm-hmm. people as part mm-hmm. of the research team because it, for, for me it feels like something mm-hmm. that it probably doesn't get spoken enough about um generally across the board but and specifically for people who are synthesizing complex mm. data and being able to bring that perspective in mm-hmm. it's hugely powerful and, re- and and just ultimately required. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Well, I think actually I suspect a lot of the research community is or is quite neurodiverse in any case. Um, mm. That's my my guest, guesstimation, but certainly... Um, so if you look at... Uh, so first of all... Um, just to make it really explicit and really clear, mm. being neurodiverse is not a mental health issue, mm. but that's an, another factor of of that stuff as well. And so, um, first of all, when you bring in a person who is neurodiverse, they'll come with different skills. Um, so I have ADHD. That means, um, mm-hmm. according to my psychologist, that means I'm really good at going incredibly deep into the data, really fine detail. And then going all the way back up right to the top and understanding a lot of connections that other people are 
not going to see. Mm-hmm. So really good at seeing stuff that you wouldn't normally see, uh, but also equally comfortable to just dive straight down into, you know, fine-grained data. So mm. that's really great. Um, when you look at um, – so I used to have a, a researcher in my previous team who had dyslexia. How do you create – how do you do good operations for someone who is dyslexic? So for mm. for a dyslexic person, you might be looking at, um, well, this researcher is not going to – be their best selves if they're stuck writing up reports all the time. Yeah. If you could speech to text that, that's going to be beautiful. And and in fact, what we often did was um, uh, she would tell the story and just because that happened to be the stage of our scaling, I would sit down and type it up for her. She would just tell wow. me the story. It was fabulous. And then, you know, I would do that. Um, obviously, later on. We moved to speech to text and, and those kinds of yeah. things. How do you, um, uh, if you're doing building a user research library and you've got a whole bunch of sketch notes, how do you then serve that to a person who is trying to use the research or read and mm-hmm. understand the research who is blind? Okay. That's not going to work. So yeah. in a really very meta way, Research operations is uh, also about designing and running a product team. You're running, you're designing and building several products, so you need to do your user research, go through the design process, make sure that you're building something that is accessible to lots of different, you know, um, mm. uh, accessibility um, needs. And uh, and make sure that that people can actually use the thing. So um, yeah, there's heaps of user research in research ops. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And like you know, when you were speaking there earlier about you know being able to drill down into the sort of the, sort of the macro or the minutia, and then mm-hmm. zooming all the way back out, that's a huge thing within service design as well to be mm-hmm. able to look right down to the interface level and then come all the way back out and understand the context of you know various levels of zoom and whatever it is mm-hmm. you're working on and it's probably something that you know that whole kind of adhd is probably an attribute across lots of disciplines within design yeah um I think so. can i ask and hopefully it's not too personal mm-hmm. how did you go about getting diagnosed what's the yeah. steps going on that because a lot of people probably sitting there driving their car listening kind of going <laughs> That sounds very familiar to me. And like, you know, I'd love to know what the steps are around that, if you're okay to talk about it. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, and I think it is important to talk about it. Um, Mm. I wasn't diagnosed until I was, what was I, 45? Something, something. Don't tell your age. (laughs) (laughs) You were were something, something. (laughs) I was was definitely an adult. I'm not going to be ashamed of my age. Um, Definitely an adult. And as a, as a, as a you know a, a cishet female very female person ADHD is just not something like I actually had to go and find someone who was who who would see me so I mm. tried when I was 40 um and right. yeah and so you know I went to see someone and she said well you know you seem okay you're doing really well in your career I mean why would you be doing this <laughs> And, and yeah. I said, well, you know, regardless of the outcome, I feel as though I'm missing some tools in my toolbox and it would be really great to have 
some more tools to manage some stuff. And I can see there are barriers emerging in my career and, and it's, I, I know it's because I'm neurodiverse. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and unfortunately that definitely turned out to be true. And, and uh, I just happened to, um, you know, I've got uh, two children and one of them I suspected was neurodiverse. And so in the end, it was a process of I had found uh, an ADHD um, actually a clinic here on the island and uh, they specialised in families with neurodiverse families. And, okay. um, yeah, and so we decided to start with me um, so that everyone else could get used to the idea of neurodiversity, which was very uncomfortable, mm. um, while I went through my little process. And then mm. we've been going on that process for my for my son as well. So is that um, person a psychologist or is it an occupational therapist? Or yeah. what kind of s- s- so, person is that? Yeah, it's a complex system uh, in Australia. Mm. So I saw a psychologist who um, went through a process of diagnosis but can't actually make the diagnosis. So um, then you have to go and see a psychiatrist who formally makes the diagnosis. And and then, you know, you can decide if you're, you know, the psychologist is about um, giving you tools in your toolbox Um, Mm. and then the psychiatrist is... um, this is your formal diagnosis and, you know, would you like medication and that kind of stuff. So that's the process. And um, there is one psychiatrist on my island who will see an adult female and, uh, and, and make a diagnosis. Yeah, it is. Mm. It's it's such a, um, hopefully I'm not saying this wrong, but it's such a new thing really, but it is for me anyway, in my Mm. mindset, um, yeah. it seems to be a lot more prevalent over the last decade anyway, but we were talking earlier about me growing up in Ireland in early eighties, mid eighties, whatever it was. Yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure there was loads of people in my school that, um, you know, weren't diagnosed with this mm-hmm. and, you know, potentially are, 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 you know, have gone through life with, with some sort of level of difficulty because of that. Hmm. Uh, lack of understanding of, of how to actually work yeah. with them. Yeah. So I think it's 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 an important topic to to speak about because there's people yeah. in my generation that are, are probably experiencing some of the things that you were going through. Mm. And you to, I think it's been. Um, I, I'm just so grateful to finally have a diagnosis, mm. and there are so many reasons why. Um, I finally stopped feeling guilty for being myself. You know, mm. I was thinking I'm not trying hard enough or, um, you know, maybe I'm just not a nice person. Maybe I'm, you know, no good. Um, all of that kind of stuff. You know, you beat yourself up over and over and over again yeah. and, it, and and that's really damaging. Um, but to actually just finally kind of, like, I am on medication for ADHD and, and, and I, you know, the day that I took it, Um, you know, I was really scared about it. And my husband said, look, you know, if you don't have ADHD, you're going to clean the house really well. (laughs) You're going to run around the house and clean it really, really well. It's like, that's the worst thing that's going to happen here. So it's fine. I'm here with you and we can just do this together. And, you know, I was terrified, really. I I don't, you know, but uh, I took it and, uh, and suddenly I just, um, you know, I noticed that, 
that time changed for me. So, you know, time blindness is a thing with ADHD. And mm. I thought it was just because I was a bad person, that <laughs> um, yeah. I was always late. Uh, but actually, time is actually just different for people who are not neurodiverse <laughs> that wow. don't have ADHD. And I instantly knew that that was the first thing I noticed. Wow. Amazing. That is, that is, that's actually quite trippy. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, cause you know, we're, we're, it's kind of ingrained, it's ingrained in me, like, you know, to time is always something that I'm looking at and I'm right. aware of, and I'm, it's something that I'm, you know, it's there. To, and for that to, to not be a, a thing is, is huge. So what, what kind of change happened um, <gasps> after? Look, um... Did you buy a watch? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no. And, you know, I'm, I, I still struggle. I'm still late a lot of the time yeah. for things. But, um, you know, I noticed that I my brain wasn't constantly yeah. low on dopamine. So I wasn't constantly looking at my phone and checking messages. And, you know, nice. I, I could actually I could actually just settle and finish a thing. And, you know, so I, that day I, I just sat down and, and finished something I'd been working on for three months. <laughs> Wow. Okay. <laughs> I can finish that is things. Incredible. <laughs> that is, that's that's so cool. Like you know, in in yeah. many ways. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah, it's... and and you know, ultimately as well, um, you know, someone had asked me to do something, and so with ADHD, you get this thing called rejection sensitivity dysphoria, uh, okay. which is, um, you know, you know, you're a bit weird, and so, um, and and you're always seeking that kind of approval so that you get that dopamine input and um and that's you know one of the ways you know I'm a real helper <laughs> mm. people will say that to me you're so kind and you, you just always say yes and um and you know you should probably stop doing that because you're going to run yourself to the ground and mm. um and you know shortly after I had started that uh someone asked me to do something that was a little bit unreasonable and I said look you know it's a close friend and I said look um I love you but I love mm. me more and yeah. so I'm just going to say no thank you and right. I could never have done that before that's it's very powerful in mm -hmm. in terms of going through that whole kind of diagnosis process to yeah. um it's almost like the governance piece that you mentioned earlier it's yeah. it's liberating it's me free. In, in many yes. ways yeah so I can see why now the like the likes of research ops um it kind of feels like it's it's part of you does that make sense yeah uh, i think it's so. part of your fabric yeah i had no idea that um you know there's all these different ways like you know i've done so many different jobs i've been a trainer i've, uh, yeah. I've done data analysis i did metadata management uh, i've done knowledge mm. management um you have know, done business management uh you know all of those things that are necessary for research operations and I've done research and yeah. you put them all together and you actually just get research operations. Absolutely. It's, it's, like, it, it, it's it, like the whole thing was made for me. <laughs> absolutely. And it's, it, you know, it's who, who you are. Um, and a lot of the work that you've done kind of point back to the, you know, the, the strength of your neurodiversity. I mean, that's, yes. that's a lot of the, the, the benefits yeah, you've created a lot of these systems that a lot of people are reaping the rewards for. So the the research ops community, obviously, there's lots of people as part of the re research ops oh, yeah. community. It's not me. So, <laughs> Team um, effort. But it, absolutely. But it's it mm. just seems like it's it's um 
it's an extension of yourself when, when, you, when you when you relay back to your your diagnosis and the journey that you've been on mm. so uh, like kudos to you for for going through that whole process and <laughs> um you. you know it, it's fantastic that you're able to talk about it and hopefully people out there listening will have a little bit more mm. of an understanding of what it means and yeah. i know i've learned a few things today from from speaking with you which is good. which is really good you know, it's a project, little we, bad. We, we, absolutely. <laughs> but look, we, we could honestly speak mm. um, about lots of different areas. And, you know, I'd love to have you back on the show at some point um, to to catch up about how, how things are going with you. Mm. So if people wanted to reach out to you or connect with you, what's the best way for people to do that? Mm, okay. Uh, well, first of all, I would say... Um, if you don't want to connect with me, but you want to connect with Research Operations, I would mm-hmm. probably go to the website, which is researchops.community. Nice and easy. Yeah. There's a little join uh, the community button at the bottom join of the, the Slack first page. Yeah, yeah. As well. Join the Slack group. Um, and then uh, whew, uh, I'm, I'm always on Twitter. Um, yeah. You know, new diverse yeah. people quite like Twitter. It's very quick and immediate. Yeah. Quick <laughs> uh, so I'm quite often there. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, what else? Um, I don't know. Can't think. I'll put links to those in the, in the show yeah. notes anyway, and and, and people yeah. can reach out to you there, and like yeah. they can tweet to you whenever they want. Sounds Bridget is absolutely brilliant speaking with you. Um, have a great one, and thanks very much for giving us thank all your you. energy today. Yeah, thank you. Likewise, nice to speak to you from another island. <laughs> another island to another island. Yeah. Take care. Thanks. So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research and much, much more. If you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care.